This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the coldest room in the house. I'm not going to take you complaining when I know there are four coats in your car, so. (laughs) (laughs) Standard issue. For all women. Hello and welcome to episode 223 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I, I don't mean to boast, but we sorted out the big cupboard at the weekend. Wow. Is it that terrifying little cupboard that you, looks like you get stuck in? We call it Narnia. And as I was backing out of Narnia straight onto the stairs, I did say, I think I've only got a couple of years of this left in me. <laughs> but it's such a great, useful space when you're actually in it. How big is it? me. Why is it scary? I'm confused. It's a tiny door into the space under the eaves. Up in the air. A tiny door up in the air. (laughs) On the staircase. It's a really dangerous door into another dimension, Jen. It takes you into a really thin, tightly compressed alleyway. (laughs) Jen, do you remember when we stayed in Edinburgh and we had that shower that you had to walk? Yes. You you had to walk sort of sideways to get past. (laughs) And every time my tits got a little bit stuck and I thought, I'm going to be here forever. It was a bathroom for perverts, for sure. Imagine imagine calling the fire brigade and just saying, my magnificently betitted friend is wedged in an unnecessary <laughs> shower corridor. <laughs> but at Incredible least you can scene. see yourself from the ceiling. So. Yes, yeah, the sight that you reach. Because that's what you need in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was, that's not where I was looking. Bless you. <laughs> Me either, Mick. Me either. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And I cleaned my car out at the weekend, and I tell you for why. Is it flooded again? No. So, okay. I went into town to meet someone for lunch on Friday, and therefore I was able to park in this secret little car park. And when I was walking back to my car, and not to to say too much about this because this isn't my like business to say, but I encountered a mum and a daughter who needed help, and I said well, where's your car? And they were like, oh, it's up there, which was about two miles up the road. And I said, well, look, that's my car. Let me take you to your car. That would make life easier for you. And they immediately were like, oh, that's so helpful. You're so nice. And I was like feeling just just like this immense like level of, aren't I wonderful? Aren't I doing a good thing? And then I thought, oh my God, they've got to get in my fucking car. And immediately I thought they're going to think I am some sort of mad killer. You, I should be worried that I'm inviting two people into my car. And I was like, don't back away from it. I was waiting for them to go, no, 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 no. We'll take our chances on our own. Uh, but they did sit in my shit tip of a car. Yeah, I dropped them off and uh, I immediately came home and cleaned my car up in case this happens again. I just watched as the horse was free in the fields as you locked the stable door. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'm now just driving around going, does anyone need a lift anywhere? (laughs) Can I help you? That's that's creepy. You need to stop that. Yeah. I genuinely thought that story was going to end with, and then they were sick in my car. And that's why I was wincing throughout that story. I think the point is, Jen, they might have been, and Hannah wouldn't have noticed because it was already a shit tip on wheels. Yeah. Yeah. 
exactly yeah. that. She used to be a stand-up. That's what happens. I had four different coats in the back of my car. I didn't realise I even owned four different coats. Oh, you're going to have to wear all of them throughout winter so you don't have to put the heating on. Yeah. I'm Jen Offord and I'm not sure how I feel about a digitally remastered Darth Vader. Now, I'm interested in this as a fact, Jen, because so much of Star Wars is already digitally enhanced. No, it's it's his voice. So there's two things, right, for anyone who hasn't seen the news on Monday. James Earl Jones is retiring. That's the voice of Darth Vader Mm -hmm. and indeed Mufasa and, you know, an actor in his own right. So they're going to keep making his voice through, like, I don't know, not CGI, whatever it is for voices. They're going to, like, make his voice through a computer. I find that weird and creepy, don't you? And also, who knew he was still alive? This is, like, brand new information to me. But I'm glad he is. Thanks, James L. Jones. I think it's the the sheer force of lots of different bits of information that have sent you over the edge, if I'm honest with you, Jen, because I don't find this weird that a 91-year-old man would like to retire, please, and they can do stuff to just keep his voice when it's such an iconic character. What I want to know is why the fuck they're still making Star Wars films. Yeah, good point. And I'd just like to say, Jen, while that's your opinion, I, on the other hand, this is my opinion... Um, <laughs> I know Ter- what this is a reference <laughs> Terrible to. Star Wars scene joke <laughs> Here I also do find it a tiny bit creepy I do, there's something Thank black mirror-ish About it that I that I, yeah. I also don't really like the holograms I find that there's something a bit odd about that That's as well Exactly It's the same kind of thing It's fine that he wants to retire, I'm really pleased for him that he's retiring He's earned that, right But yeah, it's it's like when they put Tupac on stage Like Oh, like when he released a song with Elton John. Oh, it made me want to it's curl not up. Nice. I mean, this I like is actually it. an episode of Black Mirror. The is one it? with Miley Cyrus is about oh, yeah. stealing mm. the sort of mm. the, the essence, basically putting sucking the talent out of someone and putting it inside, you know, a digital performance. Look. Hannah, Jen, if this is you telling me that you want me to stop recording you all of the time and then sending you little <laughs> snippets of what I thought you should have said, then you need to say it out loud. I mean, can you imagine how weirded out Jen is going to be when she realises that the real Hannah is having a spliff in the lounge <laughs> and I am just a collection of, of objects and, and pixels? I predict absolutely no surprise whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, I chat to writer Carmela Shamsi about childhood friendship, girl fear, the changing face of democracy and why despair is a luxury. I chat to art historian and broadcaster Katie Hessel about her new book, The Story of Art Without Men, about why women have been excluded from the history of art. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, big things are happening in the broadcasting of women's sport. Are they just taking someone's voice and making it play football? That's it. <laughs> OK, good. <laughs> And in Rated or Dated, we watch Death of a Fucking Salesman, or to give it its real name, Glengarry Glimross. But first, protests, plummeting pounds and prisons. Brace yourselves for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're celebrating the news that the government has ruled out a recession. Champagne and Ferrero Rocher and diamonds for everyone. (laughs) Because everyone knows that's how recessions work, right? Are you taking away my champagne, my Ferrero Rocher, my diamonds, Jen? I just don't know. I mean, I suppose, I suppose they do say the worst thing you can say if you think you're at risk of a recession is there might be a recession, right? That's the thing you're not supposed to say. 
I thought you weren't supposed to say, Liz Truss is our new prime minister. <laughs> I put it on Twitter. I'm going to say it again now. There is not a day that goes by that I don't wish Ed Miliband had chosen cornflakes. It is mad, isn't it? I was thinking this the other day. I think it was when she was wearing that pointy hat at the the Queen's thing, where every, that really, really everyone captioned that picture of her in front of um, Keir Starmer. And it, it's really funny. It's like me walking past the mean girls at school and stuff like that. <laughs> Do, have you seen that one? I haven't seen it. Because you were on holiday at the time. And the way she curtsies, I don't know if you saw footage of her curtsying at various Queen-related pompery, but like... It's fucking weird. And I remember watching it and just thinking like, as if Ed Miliband couldn't be prime minister because we didn't like the way he ate bacon. (laughs) Like, seriously, look at this. Oh, man. Yeah. Also, like, Tory MPs are already writing letters against her. Oh, God. Anyway. (laughs) I'll crack on, shall I? So, listeners, I welcome you with the news that the pound has touched a record low against the dollar. Yay! What? Hang on, what about my champagne? I'm forever rushing my fucking diamonds! Well, if you have to import any of those things, Mick, which I'm quite sure you do. <laughs> if you were thinking, well, I'm alright, Jack, I've had my summer holiday this year, think again, because this doesn't just shit all over how many pairs of trainers you could have brought home with you. Indeed, the cost of importing anything like Ferrero Rocher champagne and diamonds for all rises as our pound plummets. Imports such as oil and gas, and you already know what that means because the government has already just spent months telling us that the war in Ukraine is the reason our energy bills are so high. So in this respect, I suppose it's kind of a shame that only about 35% of our energy actually comes from Russia, right? It's that I've done five shits, which is my favourite question again, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) What's the reason for this economic freefall, I hear you ask? Well, it's the biggest tax cuts in 50 years at a time when our borrowing is peaking. Turns out this kind of wayward financial behaviour scares the shit out of investors. And it scares the shit out of me too, I'm not going to lie to you. It's scary shit, yep. It is. Let's quickly look at those tax cuts, shall we? A cut in the basic rate of income tax will be brought forward by a year. Great for everyone, right? Well, who is paying for those energy caps? It's not going to be high earners because the Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, has also announced he will abolish the 45% tax rate for people who earn more than £150,000 a year. It's also not going to be the bankers because the previous bankers' bonus cap has now been lifted. And it won't be big business because a planned rise in corporation tax from 19% to 25% has also just been sent down the shitter. But it's okay. Oh, okay. Don't you worry, they've introduced another stamp duty holiday. When in doubt, artificially inflate the cost of housing, right? It's a good noise, I liked that. <laughs> there is more though, like scrapping the increase in national insurance and a planned duty increase on beer and wine. So who is paying for all this? Can you guess, Mick? Can you guess? Can you guess? <laughs> if I sound a bit nuts, it's because I fully feel it after the fiscal policies announced in the last week including that the government plans to get tougher on those who work part-time and are in receipt of universal credit to top up their earnings. Mickey's head is now actually in her hands, listener. 
Basically, what this means is putting those who work up to 15 hours a week under more pressure to increase the hours that they work or risk losing their benefits. This will mean more trips to the job centre, more work coaching, more being treated like a criminal for claiming benefits that the law says they are entitled to. Because this has worked really well in the past if you look at what happened to the fit-for-work assessments under previous Tory regimes. Spoiler Uh, alert. No, (laughs) no. It didn't work well and quite a lot of people killed themselves actually. So uh, yeah, not not good. And who makes up a large proportion of the UK's part-time workforce? Any guesses, Mick? Ah! (laughs) According to the latest figures available from the Labour Force survey covering May to July this year, there were a total of 5.9 million women working Mm. part-time compared to 2.2 million men. It's not good, is it? No, I don't don't like it. I... Oh, it's just... Ah! Just, ah, I have a theory that maybe Liz Truss is like, we've got two years till the next general election. Just throw as much money at our already very wealthy friends as we possibly can in those two years before we're ousted. That is my my kind of hopeful thought, Jen. But, you know, two years is, is quite a long time and they're really fucking going for it. We were chatting about this via email earlier and I said to you, is it like... Like Germany leaving Poland. Like, if I can't have you, no one can. And we're just going to like fucking trash you because we know that we are out at the next election. Or do you think it's like, well, if we're out of the next election, let's help our mates out as much as we possibly can in the two years we've got left? I don't think they're mutually exclusive, Jen. I think that what you said about Germany and Poland, it's that kind of behaviour that is like the end of an abusive relationship, Mm. which is always the most dangerous so they're kind of like, well, we've got we've got two years. We're just going to fuck it up as much as we can. But I don't I don't understand the mentality, and I'm grateful I don't understand the mentality because then I would also be a cunt. As you know, I've been trying really hard not to use cunt as an insult, but there are times when only cunt will do, and this is one of those times, isn't it? There's mm. there's there's nothing else I could say about these people that would do justice to how preposterous I think they are. I tried out piss curtains in an email it. and, and it's good, <laughs> but it's just not got the the impact, the power mm. of that one syllable cunt. Yeah. yeah. And look, right, I realise that there is just too much front page news right now. The cost of living crisis, the continuing war in Ukraine, Italy looking likely to elect the far right brothers of Italy party, a deadly gun attack at a Russian school, drought, hurricanes, typhoons. But I was still surprised not to see the ongoing protests in Iran, where the death toll now stands at 41, and that is an at least. Make the front page of the BBC, The Guardian or The Times. Now in its 11th consecutive day, the protest is a response to the death in police custody of 22-year-old Marso Amini, accused of wearing the hijab incorrectly. At first, the authorities lied about what happened, claiming she died of natural causes, despite eyewitness testimonies that she was repeatedly beaten by officers. Then, as demonstrations spread across the country, they attempted a cover-up, at the same time, of course, denouncing the protesters as enemies of the Islamic Revolution. 
So the mistreatment of women over their rights has long been one of the pillars of the Iranian government. It's not just forced hijab. Iranian women aren't allowed to sing or dance in public, ride bikes, swim in open water, enter stadiums, divorce or leave the country unless authorised by a guardian or husband, among other things. Women are second-class citizens. They're every move policed. And so... The women in Iran cutting off their hair or burning their scarves in a battle against the morality police are just staggeringly beyond brave. And the rise of social media, as well as surveillance cameras in public spaces, has made it a lot more difficult for the government to deny this mistreatment that is happening everywhere. It also seems like a fuse has been lit. Protests on this scale prompted by anger over the abuse of women's rights are rare anywhere. Women's rights don't make the headlines. So the solidarity of people in Iran, regardless of their gender or ethnicity, has been remarkable. We do have to bear in mind, of course, that the picture we're seeing over here is incomplete. The Iranian government has been very swift to close off the internet and all forms of communication in Iran to stop people sharing, to stop people seeing. I'm going to end this with some words from a woman who knows much more about this than I ever can, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who wrote in Saturday's Times, quote, As someone who is now compelled to live in exile because of the regime's brutal games, who suffered separation from her small daughter for many years and was a victim of Iran's injustice system, I watch and I pray. For the generations of Iranian women inheriting this struggle, fighting for their rights over the forced hijab has become a daily resistance. They battle with it every day. May you all keep watching also. It is the sunlight that keeps us all safe. And you can shine that sunlight by sharing Iranian people's social media posts, amplifying their voices and using the hashtag Massa underscore Amini. That's M-A-H-S-A underscore A-M-I-N-I. Fucking hell. It's a lot, isn't it? It almost makes you feel grateful to have Liz Truss as a Prime Minister. Stop it! You <laughs> just stop it. Get a hold of yourself, Jen. Sorry. Fucking hell. It's gone too far. Mick, would you like some tentatively good news? Sure. Is it to do with my diamonds, my Ferrero Rocher and my champagne? <laughs> Nearly. <laughs> you might remember we spoke a while ago on this very podcast about a pilot that was taking place in which more than 70 UK firms signed up to pay employees 100% of their wages for 80% of their normal hours worked over a period of six months, also known as the four-day week trial. It'll never work, Jen, it'll never work. Well, Michaela, at the halfway point of that trial, almost half of the 73 participating companies have said that they will maintain the four-day week after the trial comes to an end. And more than half said that productivity either stayed the same or actually improved during the trial. That's exciting. It is exciting. And Hannah's going to be talking to someone about this in more detail in the coming weeks, so I won't go on about it now. Stay tuned for more information. Yep, watch this space. I'm really interested in that interview. I think it'll be a corker. Mm. And in the meantime, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask whether it's a good thing for babies to be born in prison. I know, <laughs> it's a real head scratch. No, I think, I think no. I think it's not a good thing for babies to be born in prison. Seems bad for everyone involved to me. Not least because, you know, babies, but also the vast majority of offences committed by women are often closely linked to poverty, frequently a means of survival to support their family and children, 
and they get a prison sentence because they can't pay fines. This means that the majority of women enter prison for sentences of six months or less, which, you know, is enough time to lose your home, job, Mm -hmm. be totally cut off from your family and support networks. So, yeah, there are many inequalities and injustices when it comes to women being sent to prison in the first place and some more with what's happening to them once they're in there. But the one I'm going to focus on this week is the fact that right now there is no statutory duty for judges to take pregnancy or parenthood into consideration when sentencing. Wow. I know, right? Hence the babies being born in prison. But some of them probably do take it into consideration, right? They just don't have to. They don't have to. And I don't know, Jen, you say some of them and, you know, there's exceptions to everything. But I think we can both agree that the criminal justice system isn't necessarily (laughs) fair to women. I don't know. I'm just going to just you have a little think about that one and get back to me. Okay, I've thought about it. (laughs) In an open letter to Justice Secretary Brandon Lewis and the Sentencing Council for England and Wales, a coalition of campaigners and health experts is calling for an urgent review into the sentencing of pregnant female offenders. It warns of the increased risk of adverse outcomes to babies born in custody and notes that pregnant women in jail suffer severe stress with evidence suggesting they are five times more likely to have a stillbirth and twice as likely to give birth prematurely. Mm. To be brief and surprise no one, prison is not a safe place to be pregnant. I, I know, mean, the look of disbelief on Jen's face right now. <laughs> Janie Starlin, who is co-director of Level Up, which coordinated the open letter, said, quote, Judges and magistrates must know that when they are sentencing a pregnant woman to prison, they could be sentencing her to a stillbirth too. The Sentencing Council has the power to prevent the senseless, needless harm that the prison system causes to pregnant women, new mothers and babies. It's time the UK stopped the inhumane practice of imprisoning pregnant women, mothers and babies. And if you want to, you can learn more by visiting welevelup.org forward slash petition forward slash pregnant in prison. I am joined on the Zoom by award-winning author, Carmela Shamsi. Carmela, hello. Hello. Am I interrupting you watching the cricket? I wish I could say you were, but but I regret to inform you that because I've been doing sort of pre-publicity stuff, I haven't even checked in on the cricket score. I thought you were like some, uh, and I mean this with all respect, but mad yeah. cricket fan. I am. An, and let me say, if there was a test match going on with Pakistan, I would know what was happening. Okay. You've lived there a long time now. We've not drawn you over to supporting England yet. You know, the truth is that someone asked me this question, what have you changed your mind about in the course of your life? And I said, I never thought I would feel so favorably towards the England side. And now, <laughs> if they're not playing Pakistan or the West Indies and sometimes Sri Lanka... I often now cheer on England, but certainly not against Pakistan. That would just, you know, be, it would be sort of like cutting off, you know, your entire past. I think anyone who's supported a sporting team knows that if you change sporting team allegiances, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) So I took your new novel, Best of Friends, on holiday with me, which meant I had a big old cry into my beach towel. So thank you for that. It covers a lot of ground which we will get to but at its heart it is the story of a friendship that spans 40 years and some pretty hefty social political and moral divisions so can you tell us about Zara and Mariam and why you wanted to explore female friendship I mean what I really wanted to explore was the particular nature of childhood friendship quite simply because I think childhood friendship is a different category Mm. I don't know do you have childhood friends no 
No, I was oh. going to ask you that question. I moved around I mean, a I lot. Do, but I think the world divides into two kinds of people. You know, I mean, yes, there are cat people and dog people, but there are also those who still have their childhood <laughs> friends and those who said, no, I'm done with that. And the thing about childhood friendships is certainly if I look around my friends and I quickly see that anyone I made friends with in my adult life and certainly in the last 15 or 20 years largely belongs to the same world as me. They're writers, they're academics, they're journalists broadly have the same kind of political views, you know, you shared assumptions about things. If I look at my childhood friends, they're all over the place, you know, in the corporate world, in the advertising world, world of architecture, they have very different views on things. And the reason we're friends is because we've always been friends. I wanted to write about one of those friendships, which starts so early on that the two girls, Maria and Zara, actually don't remember when they became friends. When we meet them at the start of the novel, it's 1988, they're in Karachi, they're 14 years old and they've already been friends for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it is that first moment though when secrets and shadows enter the friendship yeah. because they're coming into adolescence. I imagine and I hope that it's very different for adolescent girls today in some parts of the world, but in many parts of the world it still isn't that what happens to girls' bodies and sexualities and, and hormones is quite a secretive thing. And there's a lot of feeling of awkwardness and shame and not talking around it. And so these two girls at this moment when they're 14, they start not talking to each other and about certain things in their lives and um, how they're feeling and what is actually physically happening with them. But particularly around the world of, you know, boys and which boys are you talking to and which boys do you want to be talking to and what do you want to be doing other than talking to them? <laughs> and so there, it's a period of change for them, but it's also a period of change for Pakistan because it's 1988 and in August dictatorship that has been around for 11 years ends violently with a bomb on a plane and there are elections and a 35 year old woman Benazir Bhutto comes to power and these two girls who are on the cusp of change in their lives in any case suddenly feel anything is possible for a girl and this makes them behave in ways that are possibly a bit reckless and certain events occur which sort of cast a shadow that you sort of feel 30 years later when you meet them again in London in their mid-40s. It's such a good detailed description of the story. I, I don't know which of my questions to bounce to, but I'm going to go back to what you were saying about how these friends that have shared absolutely everything stop doing that. And I'd like to talk about what you, via Mariam, brilliantly term girl fear, which is that universal feeling of vulnerability specific to women and girls. So I think just hearing that phrase, girl fear, I think all of our female listeners will understand what that means. Do you remember when you first became aware of it? No, I don't, which is the interesting thing. But I remember the moment when I became aware that I had never understood the extent of it in my life. And that was quite recently. It was... Um, I think six or seven years ago and I was in of all places Antarctica oh okay I w yeah I wouldn't have guessed that yeah. I, w I wasn't sure <laughs> where you were going <laughs> what? I'd been sent off brilliantly to Antarctica to write a travel piece the thing when you're in Antarctica is you're on a ship with other people on the ship and you're going around and you don't see anyone quite deliberately they organize it so you do not see another ship or another human being beyond your shipmates for the 10 or 12 days that you're on the ship. And there was this one particular evening where it was the evening where people had the chance to go and spend the night actually on the continent of Antarctica rather than doing sort of, you know, little trips and coming back to sleep in the ship. And I'm a Pakistani. 
I was not going to sleep on ice in a sleeping bag all night. <laughs> Particularly when they explained the whole, you know, sort of circumstances, should you need to go to the loo at some point? I thought, there's just no way this is happening. So I stayed on the ship, and there were very few of us on the ship that night. Most people had gone off. And those who were on the ship, we'd been around each other for a while, and I felt very comfortable and at ease with them. And there was no possibility of encountering anyone else because there was no other ship around. Mm -hmm. You're on the ocean. And I stepped onto deck. It was near midnight. And it was the height of summer, which means even near midnight, you know, it's not pitch black because really what happens in Antarctica at that time of year is the sun bounces beneath the horizon and then bounces right back up again. But it was, it was still, it was fairly dark. You know, it was that moment of sort of late sunset and the shadows around and all of that. And I was standing on the deck of the ship looking around and I suddenly felt something odd. And I thought, what is it that I'm feeling? And I realized that I didn't have an antenna up oh. for danger. You know, I wasn't listening out for footsteps behind me or wondering about the shadows ahead. And yet I was standing outdoors on my own at midnight. And that freedom from that feeling is so rare that it's actually quite disconcerting. We're so, I think women are so used to just expending that energy. We do it as background all of the time. So that's the thing. That is the thing I realized is because if you had said to me a week earlier, if you'd said, so are you nervous, you know, being a, a woman wandering around London that night on your own? I would have said to you, no, not really. I mean, I, you know, I take the tube and it's dark and I walk home from the tube and I go, and it, it's fine. And it's only in that moment I realized the extent to which actually, even though I do go out and I do take the tube and I walk home from the tube, there's a little part of me that's always looking out. And of course, I would never walk through a park at night. Mm. You know, I mean, in the daytime, the London parks are my friend and I love them. Soon as it's dark, there's no question of it. And it really sort of worked on me, the fact that I thought I knew my own anxieties about being female and wandering around the world. And in that moment in Antarctica, I realized it is so much deeper and larger. And I thought, you know, and quite fittingly, I was looking at icebergs and I thought, well, it's like an iceberg. I only knew the tip of it until now. <laughs> yeah. And of course, if you're a writer, you want a word for a thing. And when I was writing this novel, there is a moment when the two of them get in a car. And at first it's fun and kind of thrilling. And then something small just shifts and it becomes terrifying. And I'll tell you, every single woman I've spoken to, I said, oh yeah, I know that car ride. Yep. Absolutely. And when I was reading that, my heart was in my mouth for them because you're just waiting and waiting. And yeah, I think the the fact that you've termed it girl fear as well is brilliant because that is when it kicks in. It's young. It's it's not just something for women. It's something that kicks in when we're very, very young. Yeah. I don't remember when it kicked in. I don't remember a time before it. And, and one thing that's interesting is, you know, now that friends of mine have children, I look at young boys and I think, of course... I don't know an eight-year-old boy who would happily walk down the street at night on his own. All children have it. But when boys, it's kind of child fear and they grow out of it. Most exactly. of them, I mean, possibly don't. But largely speaking, that particular version of it, they grow out. Although, of course, there are all kinds of other anxieties you can have depending on what kind of man you grow into. But the specificity of the way we carry this thing through our lives as women and we don't grow out of it. And it still is girl fear. It's that same thing we knew when we were 14. We know now. Absolutely. Let's go back to the setting. And that is when we meet Zara and Maya, and we are, as you mentioned, in Karachi in 1988. 
and what they witness echoes your own life around a similar age, that reignition of democracy and hope, I guess, in Pakistan after 11 years of dictatorship. I wondered if you could just share a little bit about how that felt for you, living through that incredible bit of history. I was 15, so a year older than Mary Manzara in the novel. My first response to hearing that the dictator who'd ruled for 11 years was dead was just disbelief. I really didn't believe it. Couldn't couldn't happen. And then when I realized it had happened, I thought, well, all it means is there'll be another military dictator. And actually, this was quite worrying because I almost had this feeling, certainly not of affection towards a dictator who had gone, but sort of you felt, well, you knew him. Better the devil you know. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the thought of an unknown dictator was terrifying. And then people started to talk about democratic elections. And I thought, surely not. I mean, why would that happen? Why would... Why would a military who's been in power do this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I had no understanding, of course, the force of public sentiment and people recognizing that actually there is a moment where you can't simply hold on to power if enough people want you not to. And it became clearer and clearer there would be elections and that this 35-year-old woman, Benazir Bhutto, was quite likely going to be prime minister. I do remember very clearly a night being in a car late at night, driving over a bridge in Karachi. And there were these young boys and they were different ends of the bridge and they were singing to each other. So in a kind of call and response, it was quite a popular song and one would sing one bit. And at the other end of the bridge, the boys were sort of singing the chorus of the response. And something in that moment encapsulated for me what it felt like, you know, that there is singing on the streets, Mm. you know. And I don't know that these boys even knew each other because they weren't walking together. I remember being very, very envious of my sister because she was with some friends in a car and they got caught up in a political rally. And she said it was the most incredible fun because suddenly you were surrounded by people who were all sort of singing political slogans and and they just handed my sister and her friend flags of that particular political party. And it just was you know, it was a giant party and there was such a feeling of optimism. And and I remember staying up the night of the elections, waiting for election results to come in. And, you know, there was one state-run channel and you'd been accustomed to it, just telling you, you know, what ribbon the dictator had cut and what he had said about the armed forces. And and suddenly to see these newscasters, you know, announcing these election results, it was amazing. You said something that really jumps out to me there is that, you know, you can't hold on to power if enough people don't want you to. So let's move to modern day London, modern day United (laughs) Kingdom, right? Because in contrast, when we catch up with Maryam and Zara decades later in London, democracy, and I am given the state of it at the moment, going to put that in rabbit's ears, has a much more decrepit feel to it, which I think we can all relate to. There is a brilliant quote that Zara gives a journalist. She says, The British are too complacent that their democracy is so robust it can't be weakened. Things that would set off alarm bells in countries with histories of authoritarian rule are allowed to slide by with little noise here. Do you feel like those alarm bells have got even louder since she wrote Best of Friends? Yes, but I've been hearing those alarm bells since the beginning of the century. And it has been a surprise to me how many people took so long. The first major alarm bell that that went off was post 9-11 and then particularly post 7-7, where the British state was very rapidly rolling back civil liberties. And the line was that there is a choice to be made between 
security and civil liberties. Now that line is textbook dictatorship. Mm. Anyone who has lived through a dictatorship hears that line and feels absolute chills and also recognize it's a total lie. There is really no truth whatsoever to that line. And yet the degree to which it was accepted in this country, not by everyone, of course, and, and groups like Liberty, I mean, did amazing things to take the government to court and, and roll back a lot of those laws or prevent them from coming into place. And there were MPs, and it has to be said, who also said, we will not vote for this. And it's worth remembering that now, actually. Yes. Um, but it, it was terrifying to me when that started to happen, because I had this view of history, which was that there were certain countries where the battle for civil liberties had been fought and won. And I really, I mean, in my naivety, I'd really thought once they'd been won, they don't get rolled back. And to see how many were rolled back mm -hmm. and how rapidly was scary. And it made me think, oh, there's something wrong here. There is something wrong at the heart of what I had assumed to be was this very robust democracy. So that's been going on for a while. And of course, the last few years have been... Yeah, but particularly um, wearying and, and worrying, you know. I mean, it's, it's sort of that thing where you, you also, one of the strengths of Britain is it's so strong, it doesn't need a constitution. And you realize now that how much was you were relying on precedent and an idea of this is simply not the way things are done. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you had things like the proroguing of parliament, you know, very scary. And then you think, but, but okay, the system is working because you have a legal system that says, no, actually, you can't do that. That is a very good sign. But when the response to that is that the government then starts attacking the legal system, that has been one of the really scary mm. things, is when the government is getting pulled back by lawyers and judges to say, actually, this is against the law, and the government then going on the attack and saying, you know, these are activist judges, these are activists. What does that mean? I mean, these are lawyers and these are judges, and they're saying, this is legal or it is not illegal. Exactly. The, all the, the terminology of lefty lawyers... When yeah. it came to the Rwanda project, I'll call it that, like all, all lefty lawyers are fighting it. And it's like, no, no, what they're trying to do is illegal. Lawyers are fighting it. Yeah. And what lawyers are fighting is illegality. Mm. You know, I mean, that's it. That is, you know, it's, it's really quite simple. And they are arguing for the law. And so that has been actually very terrifying, where actually you look at one of the institutions of state that sees another one, another institution of state, and says, we need to find a way to weaken you because you are standing in the way of what I'm doing. Yeah, that's very scary. It is absolutely horrifying. And I think it's really easy and understandable to feel defeated by this government mm. and what they've done to the country and where they're leading it and how fast they're escalating stuff. A lot of it behind the scenes because, you know, the news has always got big headlines. There's always crises and it does feel like we've had crisis upon crisis upon crisis. And they're just tapping away behind the scenes and pushing stuff through that aren't making the headlines that people aren't aware about. The one thing to not feel hopeless about is that every indication is that actually the majority of the country does not want this. Mm -hmm. The majority of the country is is actually moving, you know, I think there was a, a sort of polls out today, and yes, we know polls can be tricky, but it was still quite interesting that actually it's less anti-migrant than it used to be. Yeah. Uh, people don't want the Rwanda thing. They, and, and I think there is, you know, in the way that the Americans like the idea of themselves being a bedrock of democracy, I think the British like a sense of themselves as believing in fair play and justice. Yes, agreed. So there's a, even people who think, well, maybe you need to make it tougher to get asylum, or maybe you need to be much harsher on those who fail asylum. But 
this idea of people come here seeking asylum and before you even hear their case you are putting them on a plane and sending them to another country i think it's just a step too far even for those you know largely wouldn't agree with the things i might say around asylum seekers and i hate that term those in search of refuge i've always thought democracy has all kinds of problems with it i mean even the idea of majority rule is problematic because minorities you know get you know shafted yeah but the thing about a democracy as opposed to dictatorship is there is an inbuilt process of change other elections will come it's just that by the time those other elections come the degree of damage that can be done and the lives that can be ruined yeah. and frankly you know the climate disaster that can accelerate i mean we've just seen it in pakistan yeah. in particular with yeah. the flooding yeah. and it will yeah. be the countries that aren't equipped to deal with it that are going to be the worst affected by climate change well the thing is it's not just countries least equipped it's the countries least responsible mm, that is also true yeah i think that is the most significant factor to be taken into account that pakistan is not responsible for a huge amount of green gas emissions no but it is disproportionately facing the brunt of climate change you would want there to be a government that would say actually there are conversations around climate justice we need to have that there is not a question of giving aid to pakistan it's a question of reparation do we have a government that will possibly think in that direction of course we don't no two years that Liz Truss has got before the next general election it does feel like it's well what can we fuck up <laughs> we've got two years what can we fuck up but I am very very cynical so I'm glad that you've given me a bit of hope that was going to be one of my requests so you have well I've given you a bit of hope but I've also said that actually by the time hope rolls around a lot of really awful things <laughs> can have happened and and the question is also you know what can Labour do in the meantime to say here is the alternative there's a question I've been asking for four years there is a quote that kind of encapsulated how I feel about this and how defeated I can feel, but it did also make me laugh out loud, and it's from Zara again. And she mm. says, the tens of thousands, maybe more, who showed up at rallies had less and less the air of people determined to bend the arc of history, and more and more that of those in need of a support group. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I think that's well, true. Yeah. She's also in a dejected moment at that particular instance. But it should also be said, she's still, you know, her role in life, she's the director of a civil liberties organisation and she goes to work every day and rolls up her sleeve and, you know, and does get, I think, berated at some point for the luxury of despair. It is a luxurious position, despair. If it feels like a question of survival, you're not going to despair, you can, you're just going to say, what can I do? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are so many big questions contained within Best of Friends, but one of the biggest ones I think it raises is, can we ever really know a person? So no pressure, but what do you reckon? No, because we can't really know ourselves, I think, which is sort of interesting. I mean, I'm not sure I want to entirely know someone because there's something really quite wonderful when someone you've known forever does something that's a little bit surprising or unexpected and and you have to keep renewing relationships because no one is the same person they were 10 years ago and so there has to be that renewal so i don't think it's a terrible thing that you can't completely know anyone including yourself but it can cause all kinds of problems of course because <laughs> sometimes you assume you know someone when you don't yeah keeps or you things know interesting. bits of them yeah you assume you know bits of them that you don't best of friends is published by bloomsbury and available in all good bookshops you're off on a little tour of the uk aren't you i am so i'm going to be at the london literary festival on the 28th of september 
I'll be in Bath at Mr. B's Emporium, fantastic bookshop, on the 29th of September at the Marlborough Literature Festival, 1st of October, in Norwich for UEA Live, 5th of October, Cheltenham Literary Festival, 7th October, Manchester Literary Festival, 8th October. And if you can't make it anywhere beyond your living room, I'm at the How To Academy, which is virtual, on the 16th of November. I am all over the top, so come and see me somewhere, for God's sake. <laughs> um, what's next, Carmilla? Uh, would, you, would you ever consider going into politics? Absolutely not. I love to write novels. You know, why, why give up what I love to do for something that, A, I wouldn't love to do, and B, I don't know that I'd be any good at. I'm beginning to figure out this writing malarkey. I figure, you know, why stop just as you're beginning to figure something out? I mean, that's a fair enough answer, but I do think you'd be very good at the politics. you get my vote, absolutely. I mean, right. if you were more Zara than Mariam, but I, I feel like you've established you would be. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe the secret, this is just my public persona. Pride you know. <laughs> itself is something else. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm joined by Katie Hessel, author of the new book, The Story of Art Without Men. Katie, hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I, I'm pleased to finally talk to you because we've we've had to reschedule this interview a couple of times because of me, I should add, not because of you. So I'm delighted to finally have you here. I wondered if you could start off in time on a tradition by telling us a little bit about what the book is about. <laughs> so it really does sort of say what it is on the tin. The story of art without men is the story of art without men. And it charts the last 500 years of art history. And it's really supposed to kind of overthrow the canon as we know it. There's a very famous book called The Story of Art that I read when I was a teenager studying art history. And it's a great book. It's it's accessible. It's linear. It sort of goes from prehistoric times to the, to the 1950 when it was first written. Um, but it has a huge flaw. It doesn't include a single woman. And it took until the 16th edition for their, for them to actually include a single woman in this book. So wow. you're, if you're not seeing art history by a range of people, then you're not seeing society as a whole. And for me, I thought this was an extremely, you know, sort of red alert, sort of light bulb moment to be like, well, I think it's time that it was rewritten. So I kind of took the Gombrich approach, which is Gombrich's the author of the story of the story of art. And I thought I'd rewrite it uh, without men, because I think, you know, when male artist stories have dominated our gallery walls and everything, it's very important to shine a light on women. I mean, just to give you sort of some statistics, just 1% of the National Gallery's collection is made up of women. A woman artist has yet to fill the main gallery space of the Royal Academy of Arts as a solo exhibition. And so there is just so much to do. And I sort of had this epiphany about seven years ago when I started my Instagram account called The Great Woman Artists, which is very much how this book and everything kind of came to light is because I had this epiphany when I was 21. I walked into an art fair and I realised out of the thousands of artworks in front of me that not a single artwork was by a woman. And so every single day I've been posting on Instagram and I now have a podcast as well, uh, like you, um, because we're millennial women. And... Um, <laughs> And I want to find out more. And so I've written this book, which I hope is kind of the introductory Bible, let's just say, to art history uh, from a different perspective. And I, you know, it's, I really hope that people who have never even entered museums or anything can have access to this book because it's, it's really sort of tracing the world from the 
renaissance to the present day and goes through all the kind of major movements and shifts in history and not only explains that uh, and how they came about, but roots the women in their social and political context and the time in which they lived. Okay, so this is for you, this is quite a long held interest, isn't it? Because you you studied it and that's sort of where your initial passion came from, I guess, as, as an undergraduate. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was like thinking about it the other day and my parents aren't related to art or anything at all. I mean, they would always encourage us to go to museums, which was really great. And I guess I always grew up thinking that, you know, anyone can enter museums because I did as a kid. And so when I think when you have that encouragement as a child, then you always feel like those spaces are for you, even if you're not necessarily being represented on the gallery walls, you feel like you can enter them. Uh, but I think it probably actually stemmed from my I'm youngest of lots of kids and my oldest sister uh, was really into art history. She's nine years older than me and she used to take me to galleries and museums and I honestly think it was just kind of copying her that then <laughs> sort of blossomed into this obsession. And it's just always really fascinated me. I think kind of visual culture images and everything. I grew up, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s. And I think it was a time of such, you know, the, the changing image, like what it meant in our society. And um, not that I really thought about that as a teenager, but I, you know, I loved going to galleries and museums. And I grew up in London at a time when, you know, the Tate Modern Turbine Hall was Mm. and to kind of experience a giant Louise Bourgeois spider or a sort of colossal installation that almost feels like something out of like a theme park or something. I mean, literally, it's like, how can you make art sort of blow your mind as a kid? It's like you go to the turbine hall, you enter this cathedral-like space and you just kind of experience it. And I guess I was just really fascinated by that. And then, you know, the more I looked, the more I became fascinated. And I remember like one of the formative exhibitions when I was younger, when I was about 17, I think, I went to school in central London. I used to go to exhibitions before school, including like this amazing uh, show at White Cube by this artist called Christian Marclay, who's a male, but who was who made this phenomenal work called The Clock. And it's essentially this 24 hour looping film, which is essentially a working clock. And what he did, he extracted all these different clips from like, it must've been like thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of movies with the time in it. And so it's essentially a working clock. Does that make sense? So if there's like, if it's like 8 a.m., you're going to go and there's going to be a scene from a movie about like breakfast, but you'll see a clock in the background. And so it's all about kind of, I think it's about making, how does art kind of relate to our culture? And I think also looking at these artworks that just immediately spark interest and, and allow anyone to get involved. I have like Tate membership, which is if, because it's not the cheapest thing in the world, but it's, if you can afford it, it's great because you can go for a whole, you know, for a whole year, you can go and see any exhibition at either of the galleries. And, you know, you'd only have to go to three really to, to make your money back. So it is, it's, it's a great thing to do. And, and I love the Tate Modern. It's one of my favourite places in London. And and actually, my granny was an artist, not a well-known one or anything like that. I'm crap at it, personally. And I also don't know very much about art, despite being very interested and, and enjoying going to exhibitions. And so I like what I like, but I couldn't really tell you why. And I wouldn't really have any opinions on it other than I like the way that looks. But there's a kind of snobbery about art and, and finding the kind of depth or meaning in it that might not be apparent to someone who hasn't studied it for example do you think we exclude people from art 
by making them feel like there is a set way to appreciate it? Yeah, I think it's such a fascinating topic and also one of the reasons why I, you know, started my platform on Instagram because I wanted it to access anyone. You know, I wanted anyone to be able to look at this account called The Great Women Artists that actually, first and foremost with Instagram, it's about visualizations and then you can read the caption if you want to. And actually, interestingly, I always start my podcast with the same question. I don't care if you're the world's best academic or you're the world's best artist. I say, how do you feel in front of that work? Because actually, that's what it comes down to. It's like, if you're so obsessed with this artist's work, or, or you're an artist, and you make this image, how do you want people to feel in front of it? You know, it's like, let's actually go back to the basics. Art is about emotion. Art is actually, if, you, if you're able to see, it's the most inclusive kind of art form there is, in a way. And actually, it's amazing. And I think... What I hope to do with this book is, yeah, give people a bit of context, but also it's so richly illustrated with like 350 images mm. that you can't help but actually lead with the images. And I think that's the whole point of art. You know, as someone who maybe struggled with reading as when, when they were a kid, pictures for me was my way in. It, it told me a story that sometimes I couldn't take in as much as like I love audio and I love pictures. I love reading. I love writing, obviously. But it's it, I was a total late bloomer when it came to reading and writing, whereas pictures for for me, I looked at an image and I, I I saw something or something became kind of cinematic or exciting because it was just about how do I feel as a human being, no matter what age or where I'm from, how do I feel in front of it? And I think, yeah, I think there is a huge elitism with the art world. And I really hope that I've written this book and it, I, what I really hope in a very accessible way that I you know, and, and with these kind of buzzwords as titles like abstract expressionism or impressionism. And I hope to really break down the social and political context of these movements and then interweave the women's stories and lives into it, which I find really exciting. And I really hope that it is, you know, people who've never even looked at art, pick it up and, you know, see what they see what they think and see what they like, because it is all about our personal reaction to it. Mm. My taste in art it might not be the same as your taste. And actually that's the exciting part of it that we can debate about an image that we both, you know, I might hate and you might love. And actually we'll then sort of come around to the middle ground and say, you know, what what experience it gives us. I often think about this and maybe this is just because these are the people that I talk to in a professional context or, or who I surround myself with. I often think of experts or people who talk about art. I kind of associate that more with women. Like whenever I've been to a museum or a gallery and been on a tour, it always seems to have been a woman leading it. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe I am completely misguided in that. What What do you think about that? Why Why have women been excluded for so long? I mean, it's interesting. Maybe you see maybe the people on the sort of front desk or the face of it mm. are women, but then oftentimes the people in charge are men. And actually, yes. that's what we've seen in history. And I, you know, it's it's a it's a question I am baffled by. Why have they been left out? It's either laziness or ignorance. But there are kind of like um, specific socio-political kind of reasons as well, aren't there? Like, for example, women weren't allowed to study anatomy. There, there are reasons like that why that have prevented women from being able to participate in that world in the same way, right? Totally. And it's also very much about who has been able to tell this story. I mean, yes, completely. When it comes to the artists, like women artists, didn't even have access to sort of state-funded education and access to the life room, which is where you paint the new model, which is sort of 
first and foremost sort of key skill for an artist traditionally uh, till the 1890s, especially, well, that was even in England, you know, education across the world is still not given to women. I mean, again, when we, when we think about the gender pay gap or something, it's the um, emphasis that we place on women is not nearly as high as men. And when we look at the sort of monetary value of that, a woman's artwork is statistically 10% of a male artist's artwork. Mm, wow. But also it's who's, who's been able to dictate all of this. It's been the gatekeepers and those who have guarded art history for so long. And it's like, who has been able to write those books, curate those exhibitions, lead those institutions? It's historically been white men. And I think also I'm not sort of damning them at all. I just think I don't understand what happened in history. Uh, but what's amazing is that we're in this moment now where the fact that like in 2016, Frances Morris, who's the director of Tate Modern, became the first ever female uh, director of Tate Modern or of, of a Tate. And it was this historic moment. And that was 2016. And since then, like a woman has taken over the whole of the Tate, Maria Balshaw, uh, the Louvre, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. And that's just happened in the last six years and I mean change is happening fast but it's the fact that how was it groundbreaking for a woman to be in charge when I was you know 22 or something and so and also it's like who has been able to write the books you know when I think about all the artists I all the art historians I studied at school I love them Robert Hughes amazing Berger I mean Berger's just phenomenal John Berger who wrote Ways of Seeing I have no faults with him whatsoever or or, or Gombrick but it's the fact that they did leave out women and actually how you know someone like me being able to even write this book was because I started an internet platform would I have been able to have this otherwise I don't know and so there's there's definitely a sort of correlation between the democratization of art and the sort of rise of the internet and people being allowed to actually just say you know what I'm going to start this like it's a bit like a podcast I'm not going to wait for the BBC to commission me a series (laughs) because that will take forever I would love that one day but for the moment I can just play radio by doing my own podcast and people will listen and it's great except now that the BBC have decided to dominate the space that is podcast but anyway that's a whole different debate isn't it but I was going to ask you because obviously there has been a it's such a hard word to say democratization of arts by the digital era so the the gatekeepers are less important because you can put your stuff out there be it music be it podcast be it art I mean I guess you still have to be either very 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 talented or lucky to to get any kind of following do you think that's had a huge impact on the on the visual arts but do you also think People say this a lot about journalism, for example, or writing, that it kind of, in a way, devalues the profession because you can get people like me who don't have a professional qualification who are now journalists. Do you think there's any kind of truth in that? Well, I just think it's like, it's well, if you're going to think like that, it's just become so institutionalised. And also the reason why we have seen one very apparent story in in history is because it's always been dominated by one story. And actually what is amazing about the internet, how many art forms you can reach. I mean, Instagram is literally dictating the art market in terms of the fact that, you know, I've worked with artists who have then gone on to work with the most sort of acclaimed blue chip galleries. And that's kind of the highest, you know, most renowned artists. It doesn't actually matter if you have certain degrees or prizes from places anymore it's about art and actually that's what matters I I don't care if you've had this you know 
uh, wonderful CV where you've won all these illustrious prizes. I care about how your art makes me feel. And I think, actually, personally, I think that's really important. I think it's I think it's extraordinary. And actually, as a result, we're seeing all these different art forms pop up around the world. We are exposed to so many different art forms. Like, you know, my book encompasses like weaving, sculpture, sculpture, pottery, mm. um, quilt making, textiles, yes, painting, uh, yes, you know, marble sculpture and everything. But at the same time, it's about this inclusivity, which personally for me allows for a much richer art history. I should also say like, you know, what I, I in my podcast, I interview artists and academics as well, but I also interview like literary heroes of mine. And obviously people like Ali Smith and Deborah Levy and Olivia Lau are extremely uh, well regarded, but at the same time, you know, I'm actually much more fascinated to hear Ali Smith's take on art, who is an art historian, than I am maybe an art historian, because also I, I want to get outside of mm. perspectives. I think it makes it so much more interesting because they bring with them a completely different narrative. I'd like to ask you about your book. Obviously, you talk about lots and lots and lots of female artists and there's a massive range of the women that you talk about, some which are better known who we will have heard of and some who obviously, because history has excluded them, some we will not have heard of. I wondered if you could tell me about a couple of women who perhaps are lesser known who you admire and why well I think you know whenever I think of the really early period I think of someone like Artemisia Gentileschi who you know for some people might be super famous but then for others they might not have heard of her she was working in the early 17th century and she was extraordinary I mean she kind of overcame every single barrier there was and created these giant sort of towering colossal paintings of these mythological and biblical scenes and also what she did she you know she no one can look at her work and not be kind of completely in awe or have some kind of visceral reaction because she also very much focused on women's biblical stories so she looked at people like Judith or Susanna or something but what she did with like a scene like Judith beheading Holofernes is that she is this amazing painting she actually painted it twice Judith and her maidservant they're literally butchering uh, Holofernes's neck like a piece of meat and it's sort of blood spattering and gory and brilliant and dazzling and just you know it's it's visceral it's so exciting and then when you see her you know tell a story of like the Susanna which Susanna bathing in her garden which a lot of artists have done in the past mainly as an excuse to paint a picture of a nude Susanna what she does is she actually makes hers as this woman sort of shielding away from these men and actually she puts into context what life must have been like as a woman in the 17th century and actually to be able to have that experience to create these sort of visceral paintings of a woman's expression 400 years ago is extraordinary because in a way not much has changed and then, I mean, my God, like a more contemporary one. I mean, just off the top of my head, someone like Ruth Asawa, who was this amazing artist of um, her parents was a, were of Japanese heritage. And she was, you know, she, she was born in the 1920s and she was actually interned uh, in America and, you know, lived in these horrific conditions, but was, you know, at a time when people actually came together in these camps and actually helped each other, you know, she was she was taught drawing and painting by the likes of these like illustrators for Disney and everything, and actually went to this extraordinary place called Black Mountain College in America, which was this extremely progressive college, which was open from the 30s to the 50s. And it was one of the first 
schools and history to actually allow anyone of any race or any gender, you know, to have no hierarchy between the teachers and the students, any races or genders. It was extraordinary. And as a result, you know, because she had this agency instilled in her, she first of all made these incredible sort of almost womb-like sculptures out of wire. But she went on to then open all these schools in San Francisco in her later years. And if you sort of ask anyone in San Francisco who Ruth Asar is, she's kind of like their hero. She opened all these amazing art schools, which was about kind of using these cheap materials and saying to kids, actually, you can do whatever you want with this. You, Your artwork matters. What we see in this book is all these amazing stories of, yes, these women who overcame every boundary, but also those who said, you know what, I've been given all these amazing opportunities. I'm also going to help so many other people. And so it's a kind of nice sort of pass, you know, passing on all these, the legacies of this and how they've influenced later generations. Katie, your book, The Story of Art Without Men, is available now in all good bookshops and indeed online. You've already mentioned your Instagram account, The Great Women Artists. Are you on Twitter or anywhere else where we can follow what you're up to? I am. I think my handle's just at Katie Hessel on Twitter and my personal Instagram is katie.hessel. Katie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Jen. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we are not adjusting our TV sets as we discuss all things women's sport. First of all, commiserations to the England women's cricket team who were beaten by India in their one-day international at Lords last weekend by a single wicket. It's fair to say it was a controversial victory with Deepti Sharma dismissing Charlie Dean in what's known as a mancad, which basically means running out the non-striking batter. Now, it's not against the rules, but it certainly does look a bit like cheating. And yeah, it's frowned upon. Which does seem silly to me as well, just make it against the rules, like, you know, tax evasion. Just make it illegal. But anyway, what do I know? Nonetheless, India won the series 3-0, so fair's fair, they'd already won, innit? I chatted to Sophia Dunkley and Kate Cross from the England women's cricket team for last week's podzine about that then impending game and the changing face of women's cricket. And indeed, another amazing announcement was made last week, which would have been covered in that interview had it not been pre-recorded. And that is that England women will play a home Ashes test against Australia over five days next year for the first time ever. Previously, they've just been four days and this is something that women have been asking for for a while. The women's Ashes will also happen alongside the men's Ashes, which run from the 16th of June to the 31st of July, with that test match at Trent Bridge starting the women's contest on the 22nd. You can enter the ballot for tickets now. Individual venues are holding ballots for different events. I've just entered one for the women's 2020 at the Oval on July the 5th, but there are also events at Edgebaston and Lords, as well as in Bristol, Taunton and Southampton. Speaking of tickets, la-di-da, get me. I booked this morning tickets for the Arsenal-Man United women's game due to take place at the Emirates Stadium in November. I'm going to take Lyra along with a friend and her daughter and I am anticipating spending most of that match somewhere inside the stadium because let's just say Lyra's attention span is still pretty limited but let's start her early. I don't support either of those teams but it will be a nice and indeed cheap day out at the Emirates which despite having lived pretty close to for over 10 years I've only ever been there to give blood. 
What has just happened at the Emirates this weekend is a record-breaking WSL attendance for the North London derby, in which Arsenal flogged poor old Spurs 4-0. Beth Mead scored the opener with Vivian Miedemar whacking in a brace and defender Raphael. She's from Brazil, so in time on a tradition, just as the one name, she also got herself on the score sheet. Over 47,000 fans turned up to watch this, obliterating the previous WSL attendance record of 38,000. But please, 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 I know I've just said that I bought tickets to an upcoming match at the Emirates, but if you can, please do go and watch your women's teams at their less fancy home grounds to ensure that they keep getting the opportunities to play at these stadiums as well. While we're on the subject of the WSL, broadcaster DAZN, confusingly spelled D-A-Z-N because youth, they've jumped on the bandwagon and gone and acquired the rights to broadcast the WSL and Women's FA Cup across multiple territories for two seasons. Obviously, that doesn't affect how we watch it here, but that's pretty big news in that they'll be broadcasting in Europe and Japan, which means there is growing demand for the women's game and not just in the UK. And on that note, incredible news at home on a number of levels, really, in that the BBC has announced that professional women's boxing is going to make its debut next month, as in its BBC debut. The corporation will show the Women of Steel four-fight female card live on the BBC iPlayer on October the 7th. And this is the first time the BBC has shown a professional women's match. And actually, it's the first pro boxing match they've shown at all since 2005. Unified Promotions will bring us Fight Night and Unified Promotions was launched last year by Susanna Schofield who is the first female boxing promoter to be licensed by the British Boxing Board of Control. I think if you've got a broadcaster like the BBC saying okay this is popular enough for us to kind of bother with it basically and bring it to a mass audience like people who aren't paying to watch men's fights and then the women's fights just happen to be on as an aside I think that's huge actually really exciting so watch this space for more news on that and I'll be back next time with more women's sport Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film that we watched this week means I'll now be answering any cold calls asking to speak to Michaela Noonan with, fuck you, that's my name. (laughs) (laughs) This week we watched 1992's Glengarry Glen Ross, otherwise known by fans as Death of a Fucking Salesman, a reference to its theatrical origins and the huge volume of effing and jeffing in the script. It's based on the 1984 play of the same name by David Mamet, which won him the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Its first Broadway production won Joe Mantegna, the Best Actor Tony, for the role of Rookie Roma, and the 2005 revival, which Mantegna directed, won Liv Schreiber the same award for the same part. Jack Shepard won an Olivier for the same role in the UK. There's a lesson for actors here. If you ever get offered that role, borrow a tux, (laughs) because there will be a camera on you come awards season. So, first question, have either of you seen this film before, obviously? Uh, Yeah, imagine. No, I couldn't be fucked to watch it, mate. (laughs) I have not seen it before and I have not seen the play either. That was my second question. Have you seen the play? Oh, sorry. No. No. Have you seen any David Mamet before? Yes. I can't remember which one. I feel like I must have done. Don't quiz me. (laughs) But yes. Yeah, I feel like I must have done, but I don't know. 
I don't know which. Or indeed, if I actually have. You've certainly seen uh, The Untouchables, which David Mamet oh, wrote. Yeah. there we go. Yeah. Seen and loved The Untouchables. Just going to stop here for a bit and say, I think Glengarry Glenross is an incredible play, but that's not what we're here to talk about, so I'm not going to mention it again, except to say one more thing, and that's that the character played by Alec Baldwin in the film does not appear in the play. Mamet, who adapted his own work into the screenplay, created the role specifically for Baldwin. And while the character's name is listed as Blake in the credits, that's only because they had to come up with something, as the name on the script was given as Fuck You. (laughs) I love that. Such a dedication to swearing was one of the reasons it was hard to raise cash to make the film, which went through quite a long and difficult pre-production, It was directed by James Foley, whose career is wildly varied insofar as it includes this, a number of Madonna videos, a dozen episodes of House of Cards, and both sequels to the Fifty Shades of Grey film. That is a weird old CV, isn't it? (laughs) Isn't it just? Not even the first one, the sequels. (laughs) I feel like the Madonna videos probably helped with those. Yeah. Mm. Considered a box office flop, given that it didn't make its production costs back, the film was a hit with critics and its peers, with Al Pacino getting both an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe nomination for the role of, you've guessed it, Ricky Roma, although Gene Hackman eventually walked off with both awards. Glengarry Glenross has a 95% score on Rotten Tomatoes and is now considered a cult classic and a successful study in masculinity. It's also pretty influential in terms of popular culture, perhaps most famously in the character of Gil in The Simpsons. It's also one of the films that Tracy Jordan remakes with Kim Jong-il in 30 Rock. (laughs) I also... That's so fucking funny. (laughs) I also think you can draw a pretty straight line between this and two of the best TV writers of the 21st century, David Milch and David Simon. So I've been talking for ages and I still haven't mentioned the most notable thing about this film and that is the cast, a cast that The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw described as one of the best American casts ever assembled. And I'd agree with some amendments and say one of the best almost all American casts ever assembled that doesn't have any women in it. (laughs) Two key amendments Mm. there. I've already mentioned Al Pacino and Alec Baldwin, but there's also sentient chef's kiss. Alan Arkin, and that's just the people whose names begin with an A. There's also <laughs> Jack Lemon, Ed Harris, and Jonathan Price, and Kevin Spacey, who seems to somehow have sneaked into the last three episodes of Rated or Dated. So it's good for you guys. I think we don't need to talk about him anymore in this one. Oh, can I just say it is lovely watching him get lambasted, though. That is a, <laughs> a, a joy. The plot can be compressed thus. It's pissing with rain and in a real estate office, four fucking salesmen have the bollocks put right up them when a guy called Fuck You turns up to announce a fucking (laughs) ranking yank. At the end of the fucking week, one of them will get a fucking car, one a set of goddamn steak knives and two will be on the fucking scrap heap. Fucking shit, meet fucking fan. Amazing. The only thing that I thought your summary was lacking was the word leads at least a million times. (laughs) I couldn't work out whether it was Michael in The Lost Boys or Leeds in Glengarry Glen Ross that is the most used word <laughs> in any film ever. Just to leap straight into it. What that whole thing about the Leeds is, what I can't help but say in Glengarry Glen Ross is the lie that anyone can succeed in America. You can do well, but only if you've got the good Leeds. Mm. And that is the constant repetition of that. When I watch it, that's all I can say. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a fascinating, relentless 
it's still a stage play. I think Foley's directed it as a stage play. We go to like maybe one more location than if you were watching this at the theatre in that we go to the car. But yeah, apart from that, it's very much directed as a stage play. I've really mixed feelings about it. I don't know whether we're up to the bit where we talk about how we feel about it. Well, why not? I mean, that's what this is. Shall we talk about the women? (laughs) (laughs) Jen. Yeah. You've yet to say something. So your your gut reaction or your first reaction to Glengarry Glamoroth? I fail to see how you could get such an amazing writer and such an amazing cast and create something so fundamentally hard to watch. I I found it. I I, I really didn't enjoy it. I just thought it just did nothing for me. I hear what you're saying. I think I found it unlikable but hypnotic and the dialogue is incredible. The Mm. amount of talking around... Not actually saying anything. There's barely a straightforward sentence yeah, in brilliant. nearly two hours. <laughs> and I think it's fantastic. But it, it's unpleasant. I think they're unpleasant. But at the same time, even though he's sort of despicable, I could watch Jack Lemon be Shelley the Machine forever. I think he is mm. incredible in this. He is. He is so lost. He is so awful Mm. he is so desperate and he really he he manages to get across being someone that you are sympathetic he really puts the pathetic in sympathetic yes in the first half also i'm appalled by him yeah it says something really sort of interesting about men once his dander is up or whatever you want to call it his personality changed just completely because mm. because he makes that one big sale and whatever rush of I don't know endorphins he gets around his body he 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 changes like completely and becomes a worm but in an entirely different fashion. But we have seen flashes of it before because mm. he starts off with uh, Kevin Spacey's character trying to sort of intimidate him into giving him the good leads uh, for Glenn. Is it Glenn Gary that are yeah. the good leads? Yeah. And mm. it's giving him the good leads. He starts with intimidation, then wheedling, then mm. bribery. And I'm like, I don't know which aspect of your character is the most horrific, if <laughs> yeah. I'm honest with you. But yeah. it's delivered so well. I think he's better in it than Al Pacino. I struggle with Al Pacino's character. I found mm. Ricky Roma is like, he's really, is it a legionist like that? He's slick. He's very car salesman. He yeah. is absolute salesman but one why can't al pacino look anyone in the eyes his eyes are always off like he's practicing for scent of a woman and two i just found his character like smarmy really smarmy god there's so many points to yes i agree i think jack (laughs) lemon i think this is best jack lemon i think this is career best jack lemon i think he Mm. should have got a nomination the nomination yeah Mm. I wouldn't necessarily say instead of because I think the I think Pacino's great in this. I mean, it is a great role, which obvious because everybody picks up an award for it. But I think that what's interesting about that whole he doesn't look people in the eyes is because he's like a fucking snake. He can't look people in the eyes. Get yeah. it? He's just he's just terrible. If you don't get the good leads, then how do you succeed by selling your soul? Which is absolutely what he's done. Yeah. And the contempt with which he looks at Jonathan Price, because Jonathan Price is a man that he thinks is run by his wife. Contempt he looks at him with, and yet at the same time can bring out this really sympathetic front. It's Because he needs him. Mm. He needs him. Yeah. They're all so 
morally bankrupt. It is yeah. very hard to, to like anyone in the film. There's no one likable in the film. And that line at the end that Ricky Pacino's character says, when he just goes, oh, this is true, we're not living in a man's world, I was like, oh, no, yeah. no, because it's fucking oh. awful. Uh, and actually, yes, we are. Yeah, agreed. It's interesting, the lack of women, by the way, how much power is afforded to women or mm. passed on to women. You know, yeah. there's one woman in the whole thing and it's the Coke girl in the Chinese restaurant who, I don't know if she even gets a line. She gets to make some noises, probably to do with Copes. But yeah, there are references to Shelley's daughter who's in hospital and there are references to Jonathan Price's wife. Is he called Link? Link's yeah. wife. Being the one who actually holds her purse strings. And there's a lot of, oh, you're a pussy. Like, if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in this very hotshot, male-dominated world. And hotshot is laughable because they're in a shoddy little office mm. in Chicago. But they are making a lot of money. Are they, though? I think so, given that that's 80s money. But isn't it set in the 90s? Isn't it? Like, it was, I know Mamet wrote it in the 80s, but this is 92, when, like, times were a lot tougher. And actually, I think it really reflects that. Maybe. Maybe. I think it does have a whiff of, of desperation about it, doesn't it? That Well, it has more than a whiff of desperation about it. They are fucking desperate. Yeah, aren't they? and they were and formerly very jolly capitalists, and now they're shitting mm. themselves. Yeah. I mean, there not being any women in it doesn't actually bother me. It's a play about how men interact with other men. What I was trying to get at, sorry, was that they use the idea of being like a woman as such a put down. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. No, That's not new, but it's just, it's throughout the, the worst thing you mm. could be as a woman, I feel, to these yeah. guys. Yeah. But they're not nice, are they? Like, they're, they're, they're horrible people. So it's kind of like, that's not put across as like, that's presented as not like an aspirational mm. viewpoint, mm. I guess. But money is aspirational. That power that comes with money, they're all like with it, certainly within the, the play, <laughs> the film, they're all trying to aspire to be Ricky, even though Ricky's really unpleasant. Mm. Didn't Mamet worked in that kind of boiler room, I think. So like that dialogue. Oh my God. Sorry, just on a dialogue note, Hannah, and I'm sure you'll be as excited as I was by this scene. The scene with Alan Arkin and Ed Harris mm. is just that textbook talking around are we going to do a thing? Well, are you talking about the thing? Oh, I didn't say it. I'm speaking about it. So I'm we're speaking, speaking about, about it, not yeah. talking about it. Oh, amazing. Ooh, it's just these incredible semantics and linguistics and puzzles and who's saying what and like obviously gets them both into a lot of trouble. Mm, so good. Yeah. I love Alan Arkin's voice. Sorry, this is not like a massive <laughs> deep point, but I just, I really love his voice. I just think he's got the best voice. He's probably the most The most likeable, yeah. 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 <laughs> but that's like, if I've done five shits asking me to pick my favourite. <laughs> mm. uh, I messaged you both this last night, but I just repeat it for the listeners because it did make me laugh by this point. I can't remember how far in. We're about 40 minutes in and my mum just shouted at the TV. And Kath is not like much of a shouter, <laughs> to, be, to be fair. She said, just stop talking about it. <laughs> yeah. It's not like, a film of action, is it? It's very okay. much a film of words. <laughs> okay, so that thing I said earlier about words, you know, I could bang on forever about how great his dialogue is. I made that bold claim about, about David Simon and David Milch, but I think they are both, you know, so... Is memetic a word? It probably isn't, but let's let's say that. Maybe it should be. 
David Milch, I mean, he is the king of the monologue and there are they are everywhere here and they are all proper meaty. And David Simon in the way that just men banter with each other, like the cadence, the way that, you know. Mm. Yeah. Tell you who else is a phenomenally good dialogue writer is, is Sally Wainwright and that she realises that people start sentences that they don't finish or they actually exactly. change their mind in what they're saying halfway through the sentence. And... Mm-hmm. That is all over this, and I fucking love it. It's so tight, right, because the dialogue is so fast and it's so constant. And yet, despite being clearly very written, like it's very written, like they will have had to really rehearse, rehearse. There's no messing about or ad-libbing with Mamet's lines. But at the same time, it has a natural feel to it. And like you say, people interrupt each other. People don't finish sentences. People start saying one thing and go off and finish it by talking about something else. So to, to have all that within something that is so tightly written is incredible. I mean, I don't know that I would say it's a successful film because it feels too stagey for that. Are there people who will never get the opportunity to go and see it at the theatre? Yes, if they're interested, they can watch it. That exists. And it's probably likely best case cast you're ever going to see doing that, even though it is the sort of play that gets really good people in it because it's got these really sort of meaty... Imagine getting to do any of those rants at at Williamson. They must be so fun to do. But, like, I went... Because I went to see American Buffalo earlier this year and... Mamet, like, on stage is really fucking, like, I know this sounds like really artsy-fartsy nonsense, really visceral. Everyone's always really angry. There's always a lot of spit and sweat and stuff flying. When we saw American Buffalo... Stuff? Well, I'm not sure about it. Literally stuff. stuff, in the sense of when we went to see American Buffalo, Sam Rockwell's character trashes the stage and bits were flying into the audience. You could hear people going, oh, Jesus, like, or, oh, my God, like, <laughs> because stuff was just flying around. And you're never going to get that watching a film. So is it a successful film? I I genuinely don't know. I I couldn't come to a conclusion on that. I mean, from Jen's experience, no. But I would say I would never have recommended this film to your mother had she asked me. So, you know, that's quite a high bar to cross. I think it's interesting as well, because when it was made in 1992, totally predates what we saw during the pandemic and before the pandemic, actually, which was like the national and various big name theatres filming Mm. their plays and putting them on in cinemas. So then you do lose that little bit of visceral nature of theatre by being in the room when it's happened, when it's happening and, you know, stuff can go wrong or like you notice other things when it's right in front of you to when you're watching it on a screen. But it does feel like they just filmed a, a stage version of it. And I'm I'm not necessarily mad at it. I would never choose to watch this film again. I found it quite hard work. It did make me laugh a lot. There's actually quite a lot of humour in it, which I enjoyed. And I think the acting is impeccable across the board, even fucking Mm. spacey. Like, it is just so beautifully Well, if you want a weasel, hire a weasel, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah, and I guess they are, they're all Willy Lomans fast forwarded, aren't mm. they? They like they mention the fact that they used to, when when Shelley has that speech at the end where he is just fucking spitting viciousness at Kevin Spacey's character and he's like, we used to go out door to door, we used to do cold calling. And he's, that's that's the, the sort of heyday for him. That was the golden age going out and doing that. And of course, they can't do it anymore. Technology's scuppering them. Mm. But do people like yeah. 
it's probably a stupid thing to say because obviously some people must do, but do people really like sales jobs or do people just really like making money? Oh, some people really fucking love sales jobs. Yeah, yeah. So. the like, chase, what, the kill. What, what, what I was you, like, it's about sex, the, isn't it, I think. I can't relate. It's about sex? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to need what, more like information. the domination <laughs> of, like, the, the, the kind of, the yeah, like the chase and... The, I don't know. It's like bedding a beautiful woman or something. You know, you have to work for it, and then you get it at the end. And it's Swiss Tony. It's like it's like riding, driving a Porsche. It's like making love to a beautiful yeah. woman. Yeah, but also, I mean, the, the sex sells is 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 a statement that is is based on on certainly circumstantial evidence. And it's true. And at ten to two in a nightclub, you will hear Hannah just shouting, "Always be closing! Always be closing!" <laughs> That's the opposite of what you want to be doing, Mickey. If I'm honest. Oh fuck you! That's my name. Fuck me! That's my name. I'm confused. Uh, yeah, I was like, I'd be shouting like literally the opposite to uh, to Baldwin <laughs> in there. So we've managed not to mention. I mean, he, he, you can tell why why Mamet wrote that for him. He comes in, he delivers, he leaves. Yeah, he fucks up. Brilliant. Yeah. I, he's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And at that, like, it's it's great. He is. It's terrifying, but you can't take your eyes off him. <laughs> and you're also like, he's terrifying, and he's fucking ridiculous. And yet you're like, okay, he is ridiculous. And this is the thing, like, because I have done a number of like. When I was a student, I did a number of kind of like telesales type jobs, always for like two weeks. And then just like, no, fuck this shit, this is awful, right? And also, clearly, as I'm sure you can imagine, I wasn't very good at them. But I was just like, this is this feels a lot like training at Lloyd's TSB, but with like a lot more fuck words. Like, it's just like, a lot of what he's saying is actually quite, like, you, re- you remember having training of that kind of, like, the words sort of sound familiar. Did you ever win the steak a lot more fucks. Yeah. Never won shit. I don't think I ever stood, stuck out one of those jobs for longer than a week. Um, absolutely miserable at them. And, and I'm okay with that, to be honest. Like, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Come on, Hannah. Always be closing. Okay. The question. Glengarry Glimros, rated or dated? Oh, I'm so torn. I'm so torn. I think it's dated. I do think it's dated. And I didn't like it, but I still think it's fantastic. So I, I don't know. Like, I think Alec Baldwin would fire my ass. I'm too indecisive, but that, that's all I've got. I'm sorry. I would can't you go and see it as a play? Having seen it as a film, mm. no. Right. So maybe that's my answer. Yeah. I think I'm glad I've seen it. I don't ever want to watch it again. My... <laughs> Like conversely, I don't think I think it's dated, but I I didn't enjoy it at all, and I wouldn't watch it again. I can see why people think it's rated. I'm sure there are things about it that are like wonderful, like the cast and the dialogue is you know it's good dialogue. I just I just fucking hated it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I feel like on balance, I appraised it in in this. So yeah. But I'm confused. I'm sorry, Hannah. Well, fair enough, because I, I don't really have an answer either. Because while I, don't oh, okay. think it's, while I don't think it's dated, because I actually think, you know, that central thesis of, you know, who mm. you have to become in order to succeed or, you know, how life is unfairly stacked, we, we don't all get the same opportunities. I think that, I mean, I don't even know mm. if that was his thesis, but if that's what I see in it, I think that that still exists as an idea. So it's not yeah. dated. I do feel like it doesn't necessarily translate from the stage 
to the screen successfully. Although, like I say, I'm not going to see anyone be the machine as well as Jack Lemmon did it. So I probably will watch it again in the future. Should we have this as officially as the one that we just go, I don't know. None of us know. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Okay. What's going to be an easier decision to make next week, Jen? Okay. So next week, um, it's uh, it's an Al Pacino double bill, which is a shame because all I could think about watching this is how bad his Italian accent is in the um, house of Gucci slash Gaga, which uh, I don't recommend anyone watches. Anyway, uh, it's going to be The Devil's Advocate. That's what we're going to watch next week. It's a natural progression, Jen, from Ricky Roma in Glengarry Glen Ross to The Actual Devil. Probably not much different <laughs> at all. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.